Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today we're continuing our series on the book of 1 Corinthians called The Power of Christ in a Pagan World. And on the program, we'll look at what it means to rest in the power of God. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. After the Apostle Paul had evangelized and planted a church in the ancient city of Corinth, he moved on to Ephesus, and from there he heard that the church he had worked to establish for well over a year was now deeply divided. Four factions had begun, and what was more, a great many of the people in that city felt that Paul had been a poor leader. The church, they said, was only made up of the lowest class in the society. Paul had been unable to break into the elite of Corinthian culture where influence might have been had. Furthermore, Paul was an unimpressive speaker who never understood well how to connect and make a sizable impact in that community. We would expect that Paul might have written to them to defend himself, telling them they had seriously misjudged him, but nothing of the kind. In fact, he uses words like fear, trembling, and weakness to describe himself. Now, you might think he's just being humble, but that's really not his point at all. He's told the Corinthian Christians that they really weren't all that great themselves. The culture around them thought of them as foolish, weak, and even despised. But instead of being ashamed and trying harder, he tells them to be glad about that. All of this was to highlight God's wisdom. They were a disappointing lot, and that was good. It highlighted how great God was, doing something amazing through a subpar group of people. Now to Paul's leadership. I think we all know that every single leader comes with strengths and weaknesses. And if you concentrate on a man's weakness, you'll have plenty to find, I assure you. That's especially true of pastors. I mean, some pastors are organizationally weak, others are relationally weak, some simply can't preach as well as others, and some are are lacking in confidence and stature that seems to attend others. I find it perplexing that churches in hiring pastors often have in mind a certain right kind of leader. Uh, That may include everything from the ideal age of the leader or to how the youth relate to him, to whether his wife is approachable, to how he responds to criticism, to whether he can direct his staff and mentor them, how he interacts with the wider community. They even ask what kind of hobbies he has. All manner of questions get asked, and, and they seem to conjure up for many people the idea that the ideal pastor has a kind of a look or a feel to him that easily meshes with the culture of a given church. Now, I'm not here to criticize what churches do in hiring, but I do have the sense that Paul would not have made too many search committees short lists. The phrase, unimpressive when face-to-face, would no doubt have doomed him. And yet, in a certain way, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1-5 to is a kind of defense of Paul's ministry. Let's take it one step at a time. First, Paul explains the content of his preaching. As we all know, preaching is central to any successful ministry. Paul knew that. Do this one thing well and you stand a chance. So with this in mind, let's read Paul's description of his preaching from 1 Corinthians 2, 1-2. He writes, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Notice from the outset that Paul both deals with what he didn't do and what he did do. Not this, he says, but this. So let's start with what Paul doesn't do. 
He does not use lofty speech, he says. I did not use high-sounding displays of cleverness when I spoke. In fact, he made up his mind not to use a style of speaking that would easily bring an emotional response from people. Now, how do we understand this? We do know that public speaking was extremely popular in Corinth. If you think about the popularity of certain singers or musicians in our day, many public speakers in Corinth had a kind of rock star-like status. The really gifted ones could draw a huge crowd. They would combine popular philosophy with heart-touching stories, causing people to laugh outrageously at one moment and then weep the next, and then call on people to make life-changing decisions about how to live their lives. And people would respond deeply, emotionally, affected by what was said. And one thing is clear. Paul never spoke like one of those popular men. Now, here's the question. Is that because he was unable to? Was he just missing the skill set to pull that off? Apollos, who came after Paul, might have been able to rival those men. But Paul? Well, we have never heard him preach, so we really can't say. But whatever we make of his abilities, Paul makes it clear that he made a firm decision not to use high-sounding rhetoric or speech. He also refused lofty wisdom, meaning he refused to use Corinthian styles of popular philosophies. He believed that if he used the popular Corinthian style, which made great speakers into superstar performers, this methodology would detract from the message of the cross. Now, does that mean that we should mistrust great Christian preachers? Well, I don't think so. I think, however, that there is a kind of preaching that draws attention to the speaker and not the message. I mean, we've all heard them. The preacher who is a hero in every story he tells, whose experiences form the basis of all of his messages, or whose expertise and authority trumps everything else. The message is always about that person in some fashion, and how people love and worship them. And Paul never became one of those men. Not that, he says, I determined I would not do that. But if not that, then what did he preach? Well, he said he has decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, it might be possible to misunderstand that statement. We might imagine that Paul says that every sermon he ever preached was on the topic of the cross. Christ's death is a substitute for us. He took our sins upon himself and that we by faith need to entrust our lives into his hands, kind of like an evangelist who always repeats the same message every time the same. Is that what Paul is trying to communicate? Well, most Bible teachers agree that the book of Romans probably represents what Paul would have taught as he established any new church. A quick survey of that book tells us that he really does speak a lot about the cross, but he also speaks about other things like election, the Holy Spirit, the relationship between the law and the gospel, submission to governing authorities, well, a lot of stuff. And in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul addresses the need for Christian unity, how to understand Christian leadership, how to deal with church discipline, questions about marriage, how to understand Christian freedom in relationship to difficult ethical issues. And indeed, the wide range of things Paul addresses shows him not only capable of handling a full range of issues, but that he taught on many issues. So how are we to understand that he knew nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified? I think the answer is that the message of Jesus and his cross pervaded every single issue that Paul faced. The centrality of the cross was the lens, if you will, through which he viewed all issues, even including the problem of the factions in the Corinthian church. Now, once you understand that, 
You should be able to read all of 1 Corinthians and see how the cross, when you completely grasp it, forms the answer to all of life's difficulties and gives guidance to all of our spiritual issues. I remember years ago an interesting conversation I had with a man. He was a middle-aged man, and he told me that he used to go to church. I asked him if he had enjoyed it, and he said, no, not really. And I asked him why he stopped going, and his answer shocked me. He said, my pastor spent most of his time talking about politics and about the injustices in the world, and he even talked about what was happening in Canada today, and he was making comments on that. And after a while, he said, I figured out that I knew about as much about politics as he did, but I needed someone to save my soul. And since I couldn't get that at church, I just stopped going. Well, I was appalled, and I said, you know, I'd love to talk to you about your soul. And he said, well, that's been so many years ago now, I guess I just lost interest, and and I just moved on. So, you know, no thanks. You know, in our day, we have preachers who are pop psychology preachers, motivators, self-help gurus, entertainers, political commentators, social activists, and men of wild speculations. Hear me, we need none of that. Listen to what John Stott said. He said, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in, said Stott, is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? I have entered into many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries, and I stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile played around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I have had to turn away, and in my imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. And that's the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood and tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings became more manageable in the light of his. There's still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross that symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. Other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak, and not a god has wounds, but thou alone. Indeed, so it is. Well, what an incredible quote to leave us with in the first half as we look at this passage. Paul's words truly reinforce what should be at the core of our personal faith, the centrality of the cross. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld will finish explaining how Paul modeled the kind of leader that honors God and his message that continues to speak to us today. Have you been feeling tired, beaten down, and alone? If there's anything that the Bible tells us, it's that prayer is a powerful tool for the follower of Jesus. Well, this month, Back to the Bible Canada is dedicating November to pray specifically for you. If you receive our monthly ministry letter, there's a prayer note inside. You can return to our office and a team member will join you in prayer. Or if you'd rather, you can visit backtothebible.ca backslash prayer and send your prayer request on a special confidential prayer page. Either way, we're praying for you this month. Prayer is critical to the ministry, so we want to share our prayer request with you as well. 
Together in prayer, God will do great things. So call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca backslash prayer to let us know how we can partner with you in prayer this month. Paul has given us the content of his preaching ministry in Corinth. He was resolutely determined to know and preach nothing save the cross. You don't need a superstar. You need that kind of a leader. That was the content of his preaching. But Paul has more to say. Next, he exposes the nature of his personal inadequacies. Let's read 1 Corinthians 2, 3-4. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of spirit and of power. Now, that's quite a confession to come from the lips of not only a great preacher, but an apostle. He bears his soul to a group of people who are already critical of him. This is not the only time he admits to personal inadequacies. In 2 Corinthians 11, he mentions the times he was in prison, beaten, in danger, and even at the point of starvation. And then he admits the pressure he felt from the churches and even the anxiety he lived with. He admits the criticism he received from Christians. In 2 Corinthians 12, he mentions some form of physical ailment. In Galatians, he admits he was sick the entire time he visited Galatia. And here he admits his fears. He's completely aware of his human limitations. I've already made mention of some of the reasons for this. Before he arrived in Corinth, he had already been imprisoned in Philippi. He'd been run out of town in Thessalonica and Berea, and he had been mocked and ridiculed in Athens. Now he was in a town that was the epitome of paganism and moral degeneracy. I personally think he trembled before the enormity of the challenge before him. He realized that he was completely inadequate to meet this challenge. He admits that. Now, years ago, I had the great joy of being under the mentorship of a man named David Larson. You know, Dr. Larson has written an imposing book entitled The Company of the Preachers. It's a history of Christian preaching and of preachers. And I love that book for many reasons. But one of the revelations I got from reading that book is how often preachers have been maligned, slandered, and kicked out of churches. Athanasius, the great defender of the deity of Christ, was kicked out seven times. John Chrysostom, who many think was one of the greatest preachers in the history of the church, was thrown out of Constantinople as others rejoiced. Spurgeon's own brother turned against him and broke his heart. Jonathan Edwards was removed. The list of those mistreated is a long one, but that's not the only thing that impressed me. So many of God's servants struggled with illnesses and died young. But why should we be surprised? Was not their Lord and Savior mistreated? And is it not an honor to be treated like him? Now, Paul is doing more than saying, wow, you know, I'm really suffering a lot. Woe is me. He is saying, woe is me, for I know my weaknesses more than my enemies do. The fear and trembling that I have are a sign of genuine weakness and lack of ability in me. I do know this. Show me a pastor, an elder, a deacon who feels competent to do the job, and I'll show you someone who's going to harm the church of Jesus Christ. But show me a leader who trembles and with his trembling humbles himself before Jesus and prays for his power, well, that's another thing. Great leaders are not concerned with personal inadequacies if it means they rely on Christ more. And that's what Paul says. My message was not a showcase of my own brilliance. It was a demonstration of the Holy Spirit and power. Now, there's three important words there. Demonstration. 
It's the word that comes from the law courts, which means that evidence is given that no one is able to refute. The second word, spirit. The Holy Spirit worked where Paul was weak. What the Holy Spirit accomplished in winning people to Christ was irrefutable. And then the third word, power. I love what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 5. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Here's what I know for certain about the kinds of servants of Christ whom God highly honors. They're men and women who know nothing but the cross, who are aware of their weaknesses and inadequacies, but in spite of them have seen the power of God. And they are people who believe that changed lives are what really matter. Look now at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, here's a simple fact about all of life. Every one of us have ways of measuring how we're doing. When you're in school, you know, we get marks, and that's supposed to be some kind of an objective look at our progress. And if you're in business, you might measure how you're doing by how much money you're making or how fast your business is growing or or something like that. If you're in academics, you might want to know how many books you've published. As a parent, you might look at your kids and ask, well, how have they turned out? Well, you understand, all of us have a ruler of some sort, a measuring tape, a standard, tells us how we're doing. What is it that the Christian leader uses as a measuring standard? Some preachers think that the standard is how many compliments they get or how many people show up. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who once said that a a magnificent organ and a great preacher is a mighty weapon in the hands of Satan. Why? Because we begin to trust in ourselves and not in God. We glory, we boast in ourselves and not in the Lord. And every leader has the same problem. What makes me a success? That's the question we ask. And here's God's answer. Paul says, the mark of a good leader is a demonstration of spirit and in power. But you might say, yeah, but how do we measure that? And his answer is in the changed lives around him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, you yourselves are our letters of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. He's talking about changed lives, a ministry that leads men and women from death into life. In other words, all that matters is that human beings trust God. That's all that matters. Oh, how hard it is to hear that. We want people to notice something about us, but God will not share his glory with us. Look at it this way. If the Christian faith rested in our abilities, it would have failed, disappeared, and died centuries ago. See, one of the most painful things you'll ever do is to study the history of the church. We've sinned so often, been divisive so often, cared so little about others so often, and misrepresented Christ so often. If this were of human origin, of human design, it would have rightly been thrown onto the ash heap of history. But the Holy Spirit keeps acting in power to change lives through the wisdom of God, which is found in the cross. You know, yesterday I began my address by sharing my concern over my home and native land. I would that it would be impossible to live in Canada without having to decide what to do with Jesus. I would that Christ and his gospel would be so pervasively preached in this land that it would be impossible to live here without having to decide what to do with Jesus. And that will mean that God raises up great churches, at least so I said. But I also quoted Celsus the philosopher. He called the people of the early church bats and ants and and frogs and mudworms. 
They were anything but great people. And yet these people saw that the message of the cross changed not only their lives, but an entire empire. And the apostles? Well, at one time, Paul broke ranks with Barnabas, and the two of them never traveled together anymore. And and at one time, Peter forgot the message because of intimidation in Galatia. He got intimidated by the Judaizers. And at the Council of Jerusalem, the church almost forgot the essential message, but thank God they didn't. And all of us today who say, we need to be more like the early church. I always say, well, which one do you want to be like? How about Corinth? Here's what we should really be saying. We need to get back to the message of the cross, and we need to start trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit to change lives. How we need to trust not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And here's the kicker. If you want God to do great things through us, well, we need to humble ourselves. We need to confess to God that we are, in fact, unable to do that which needs to be done. And we want God to use us to change this world and that we need his power. And when God starts doing that, you and I will be boasting not in ourselves, but we'll be boasting in the Lord. Do you want to rest in his power? I think we should. Oh, Heavenly Father, may we today find in your power and not in ours all that we need for life and godliness and to reach this nation so that it may again hear the message of Christ. So let it be, Lord Jesus. Amen. John, thanks for that reminder today about uh, Christian leadership and church leaders. As you were talking about it, though, I was thinking, how do we come alongside of our church leaders, our pastors? How do we encourage them in this way in the church? Ben, you've been a pastor. I've been a pastor. I've been a pastor for some 30 years. And I do know the things over the years that were deeply encouraging to me. Uh, I would sometimes get letters from people, notes that, that simply said, I'm praying for you. But I think the ones that meant the most to me were people that would mention specifics in my life. I came to realize that there are people who knew me and also knew of my weaknesses, but loved me all the same. And there was something about that kind of unconditional love that was so encouraging to me. And it also was encouraging for me to recognize that when people came to know the Lord, that they actually gave glory to God. I think that uh, one of the most encouraging things anyone ever said to me was, it really wasn't you at all. It was God's word and his power. And so somewhere in all of that, uh, we need to have this dual focus. One is we, we, we must encourage our leaders just as you've said, but we must also recognize that what God has given them is that, you know, that priceless treasure to declare the word and to highly value and appreciate and love the word. Why, that's encouraging. And let me also say something that you know, might seem such a slight thing, but if you actually bring a Bible to church and open it when the pastor reads it, that's encouraging. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Psalms of the Seasons, our 2020 Back to the Bible Canada calendar, reminds us of many things. It reminds us of the beauty and magnificence of creation and the beauty of God's Word. It provides a uniquely designed Bible reading plan by Dr. Neufeld, and there's no better way to start the new year than a commitment to read God's Word cover to cover. Now, the calendar is limited, so it's only available as quantities last, so reach out today to ensure you get your copy of Psalms of the Seasons. This calendar is filled with encouragement, beautiful pictures, the Bible reading guide, and it's yours for free 
while supplies last. So to request your copy and perhaps consider a financial gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to order your calendar today.